So this is the penultimate talk in a series that we've been going through called Reconciled, the way of Jesus and the way of the cross. We've been looking at five questions that, you know, questions that are asked to Jesus or Jesus asks to others. And these questions become like launch pads for Jesus to speak into this theme of reconciliation. And through these questions and through this teaching, Jesus names five of the key obstacles to us being a people of reconciliation. So hopefully the five questions are going to appear on the screen. Well done, Phil. Absolutely on it. So question number one, who is my neighbor? We explored the story of the good Samaritan. And Jesus basically says, if you want to be a minister of reconciliation, you need to lay aside prejudice. Any hatred in your heart, you need to get rid of it. Week two, in conversation with Tim May, we looked at the question, who's the greatest? This is the question of supremacy. And Jesus uses this question to basically say, you need to lay aside power, empty yourself of power. Question three then, Anna Mason last week did a phenomenal job looking at the question Jesus asked the, the disciples. Who do you say that I am? In other words, who's Lord? You remember the story that Judas can't bring himself to say, Jesus, your Lord. All the other disciples say, Jesus, you are Lord. But for Judas, it's like, I can't go that far. You're my rabbi. You're a teacher. You're like a, a peer, a guide. I can't submit to your Lordship. But reconciliation takes place when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. We need to lay aside pride and control as we bow the knee to Jesus. Which leads us to question four, the question for today, how can I be saved? Now, let me just reframe that question to how do I get a seat at the table? Now, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus enters into a conversation with the Pharisees. It's an argument, really. And they're talking about the banquet, which is a Jewish metaphor for the age to come. You see, the Jewish people believe that at the end of history, God and Israel would be wedded together and there would be a huge wedding feast. And the Pharisees thought that they would be the guests of honor, the really important ones. And Jesus comes along basically saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here right now. In other words, this wedding feast that you've been waiting for is taking place all around. And guess who the guests of honor are? It's the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the lepers and the outcasts that have responded to this message of the kingdom. They're the ones whining and dining with Jesus. So the Pharisees are watching this. They are irate. This isn't right. This isn't proper. We're meant to be the guests of honor. So this conversation is taking place. Who gets a seat at the table? And then in Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories to respond to that question. The story of the lost sheep, number one. The story of the lost coin, number two. And the story of the lost son. All of these stories about reconciliation. Do you remember we said this in week one that the word reconciliation, it comes from a Latin word, a compound word, two words shoved together. Re, meaning back and then consolere, meaning to bring together. Put them together, it means to bring back together. So the shepherd and the sheep brought back together. The woman and the coin brought back together. The father and the son brought back together. Now, the way this trilogy of stories operates, it's like a left hook, a right hook, and then an uppercut. The final story delivers the blow. And, and this is the power of the final story. This is the message. Are you ready for it? That mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Story one, story two, and then the final story hits you that mercy triumphs over judgment. Everyone's talking right now about justice, racial justice, and, and you know, judgment, all of these conversations. And we need to hear this message of Jesus, that if we want to be a people of reconciliation, we need to grab hold of the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's read this final story. If you've got a Bible, if you want to grab your smartphone, if you're not watching on your smartphone, then let's read Luke chapter 15. This is the story of the prodigal son, the story of the lost son. We're going to start reading from verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give, my share of the, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now you need to understand that in the context of the first century, this is basically the younger son saying, Dad, I wish you'd hurry up and die because I want my inheritance now. I want the money now. This is the son wishing his father dead. Even the ask brings shame on the family and on the father. But the father's so full of grace. He says, fine, take your share of the property. The story continues not long after that. The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, totally grim, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses. If you've got a Bible, why don't you just underline verse 17? It's key to understanding this story. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go to my father and say to him, this is the rehearsed speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. In other words, this was the speech he'd been rehearsing. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. It's barbecue time. It's party time. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. It's an amazing story. I want to pull out three thoughts from this story. Firstly then, when it comes to the theme of reconciliation, if we want to be a people of reconciliation, point one is we need to wake up. Verse 17, he came to his senses. You know, the actual Greek of that verse says he came to himself, which doesn't really make sense. Hence the translation, he came to his senses. But the point is, before he returned to his father, he returned to himself, his full identity. He woke up and realized, goodness me, my father's a father of grace. I want to be reconciled to my father. Like he woke up. This is what we need right now. We need to wake up to our need for reconciliation. 
I want to ask you the question, is there anyone you're disconnected from right now? Is there anyone where there's hatred or bitterness in your heart? Life's too short. It's time to wake up for our need for reconciliation to be front and center because that's where the journey to reconciliation begins. So number one, it's time to wake up. Number two, verse 19. This is the part of the story where we realize that religion isn't the path to reconciliation. It's the obstacle. Religion isn't the path. It is the obstacle. The son in his speech says, Dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, give me a job. And I'm going to get some income from my work. Maybe if I work hard enough and maybe if I work long enough, maybe I can purchase my way back into the family. Maybe I can earn it, buy my way back to the table. And the father totally rejects the thought of that. You see, that's the message of religion. If you can be good enough, morally upright enough, if you can do certain things, then you can earn your way to the table. You know, Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, said of religion that it's the height of our rebellion against God. Our story is a message of grace, of the Father coming down to be reconciled to us. It's not a story of how we, through good deeds, make our way back to God. Religion isn't the path of reconciliation. It's an obstacle. You see, the Pharisees don't get it. There's a wedding feast and it's all about grace. And the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the lepers, they're having an amazing party and the Pharisees can't understand their religion is is an obstacle to reconciliation. Here's the third point then. If religion isn't the path, what is the path to reconciliation? And the answer is mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, to understand the weight of that statement, we need to delve into the story because it's a very Jewish story. So I want you to imagine that you're part of the crowd in the first century listening to this prophet, this rabbi who has extraordinary authority. He's telling this story. Now, to enter the mindset of a first century Jew in the crowd, you need to know three things. Number one, throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel have a title and the title is God's son. Through the Exodus narrative, the journey from Egypt to the promised land, through that process, Yahweh, God, adopts Israel as his son. That's why God says to Moses, you need to go to Pharaoh, the emperor, and I've got a message for Pharaoh. Here's the, the message. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. You can hear almost in the words, God as a father saying, liberate my son, let him go. And what happens through the Exodus story is God and the son, father and son, um, enter into this covenant relationship where God basically says, if we're in this covenant relationship, then all of my blessings, they can flow from me to you and you will know fullness of life. But if you disconnect from this covenant, if you break this covenant, which you're free to do, because love always gives free will. It's never controlling true love. So if you reject me and walk away from me, you need to know that you're walking away from the source of blessing and you're walking away from life itself. And if you walk away from life, that's going to feel like death. If you walk away from blessing, it's going to feel like a curse. 
Now, if you fast forward the story of the Old Testament, you know that the nation of Israel end up in exile in a far off land in Babylon. So when Jesus tells a story of the son rejecting a dad and ending up in a far off land, everyone in the crowd's thinking, this is our story. Like we're the lost son. Yes, we're back in Jerusalem, but we're not free to be the people we're called to be. We're still living under Roman oppression. This feels like a curse. We want to be reconciled to our father in heaven. We want to live under his blessing. So everyone in the crowd's like, listen to this story. This is, this is our story. Maybe he's going to tell us where the story is heading. That's the first thing you need to know. Second thing you need to know in the first century and in Middle Eastern culture, there's a ceremony known as the Kezazar ceremony. Now the Kezazar ceremony goes something like this. If a son shamed his father and the family name by taking the inheritance early and going off like this son in the story did, if that son ever tries to come back to the community that he is shamed, what would happen is the people of the village, the elders of the village would line up on the threshold and there would be this showdown. Um, and they would take a clay pot and as the son you know, came near to this threshold, they would take this clay pot, I wish I had a clay pot with me, and they would throw it on the floor and it would smash into pieces. This was a way of saying to the son, you see the pot, it's in hundreds of pieces, it's broken, it's irredeemable and our relationship with you is like that. The word kezazar literally means to cut off. This was a symbolic way of cutting off the son from ever returning into this community. The most humiliating thing you could go through would be a kezazar ceremony. So those in the crowd, they know that and they're thinking, goodness me, this son's returning home. Maybe there's going to be a Kezazar ceremony. Maybe there's going to be smashing of clay pots. Maybe some in the crowd were freaking out thinking, if Jesus, this prophet, is telling us our story, maybe he's saying that God is about to perform a Kezazar ceremony on us. Like we rejected our father. We worshipped the gods of the surrounding nations. We ended up in exile. We're wanting to come home. Maybe Jesus is saying God is about to cut us off from his presence and if we don't live in his presence we can't know his blessings and we can't know fullness of life so the crowd are leaning in this is our story flip maybe a kezazar ceremony is coming here's the third thing you need to know that in middle eastern culture dignified gentlemen never run so male slaves would run young boys would run but for a dignified jewish father you'd never see them run. To run, you'd have to hitch up your robes, expose your bare legs, which in that culture is a shameful thing to do, and then start running. So you'd never see dignified Jewish fathers run. So put these three things together. Israel is the lost son. Secondly, everyone's expecting a Kezazar ceremony. Thirdly, dignified Jewish fathers don't run. Piece that together. Here's the power in the story. Everyone in the crowd's waiting. We think a Kezazar ceremony's coming. You know, we think there's going to be a moment where the father gets revenge, like justice time, judgment time. You know, the son humiliated the father. It's payback time. But if you read the story of Luke 15, there's no clay pots. If you read the story of Luke 15, there's no Kezazar ceremony. If you read the story, there's no moment where the son is humiliated. Why? Why is the son not humiliated? And the answer is because the father humiliates himself instead. 
It's the father who hitches up his robes when he sees his son and he starts running. Why would the father run? Why would the father run? Why not walk? Why not maintain dignity and have a showdown with your son? The answer is he starts running because he wants to get to his boy first. He knows that if the elders of the village get there first, they're going to perform the Kelezar ceremony. They're going to shame the son and they're going to cut him off. So it says in the text of Luke 15 that the father waits and watches for a day that the son might return. We don't know whether it's months, maybe years, but one day in the distance he sees a gaunt figure, but he knows it's his son and he can't help himself. I need to get there first. I need to get there first. So he hitches up his robes and he starts running. And you can guarantee people were watching, laughing, thinking, what an idiot. How humiliating. But the father's like, I don't care. I need to get there first. I need to get there first. And he finds his boy and the boy starts giving the speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, nonsense. And he throws his arms around him. You have the cloak back on his shoulders, a signet ring on on his fingers. This is the father saying, no, you're returning as a full son. You were dead and now you're alive. You were lost and now you're found. This is party time. This is what I've been longing for. And the story you know, ends with this incredible embrace. Now the crowd listening would have been like, what? Like, what kind of father would do that. Remember that first century culture, honor, shame culture. What kind of father would forgo a moment of justice and judgment, like payback time, pouring out wrath on the child that humiliated you and shamed the name of your family? What kind of dad would do that? That's what people in the crowd are thinking. What kind of dad would do that? Jesus tells this story to basically say, your dad. Your dad, you're the lost son. You ended up far away. You're trying to get home. And what you need to realize is that in the heart of your father, mercy triumphs over judgment. You deserve the Kezazar ceremony. You deserve clay pot treatment, but you're not going to get it because this is what your father is like. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I'm guessing a lot in the crowd just couldn't get their heads around the story. But before long, they would see Jesus, God in human flesh, hitch up his robes, expose his legs and start running. They would see Jesus stripped naked, humiliated, beaten with a crown of thorns on his head, nailed to a cross, hitching up robes, embracing shame and running to rescue prodigal sons and daughters. And then his arms stretched out upon the cross. What is that the posture of? And the answer is, it's the posture of invitation. It's the posture of welcoming home family. You see, the cross is the means by which we experience the love of the Father, the embrace of the Father. The cross is the means by which we experience mercy. The cross is the means by which we experience reconciliation. So yes, the cross is about justice. Absolutely it is. Yes, the cross is the means by which the wrath of God at human sin is satisfied. Yes, yes, the cross is the means by which judgment takes place. But the point of the story, if you read Luke 15 and understand the sort of Jewish background to the story, the thing that hits you isn't justice, isn't judgment. The thing that hits you is that mercy triumphs over judgment. And the crowd would have been stunned by that kind of message. 
What does the world need right now? What does London need right now? And the answer is mercy. London needs mercy. Our communities need mercy. There's so much division. There is racial division. There is class division. There's socioeconomic division. There are gender wars. There are postcode wars. There's, you know, division left, right and center. What we need is reconciliation to be brought back together. That's what the world is longing for. And that's the message you and I have been given. So how do we become messengers of reconciliation? How do we become agents of the remedy that society around us is searching for? And the answer is, it's time to wake up. The journey begins when the son came to his senses. He came to himself. Time to wake up. Now, we could talk on the macro scale about culture, but I just want to talk on the individual scale for just one moment. Is there anyone that you need to be reconciled to? Is there anyone where there is hatred in your heart towards? As I said before, life is too short. It's impossible to be an agent of reconciliation when there is hatred in your heart heart. If you want to be part of the remedy, you need to wake up to the problem, the stuff that's within and experience the mercy of God. So number one, it's time to wake up. Number two, it's time to recognize that religion is an obstacle. It isn't the path to reconciliation. Religion, this idea of us earning our way back to the table, purchasing our place at the table, it doesn't work like that. You see, secularism is the religion of our day. It's a man-made religion and it promises so much. And we need to just acknowledge that secularism is becoming deeply pharisaical. Naming who's in, who's out, who should be cancelled, you know, who's beyond the realms of grace and kindness. More than that, it has its own ethics these days. And it's pretty religious about those ethics. It's fairly intolerant of many different people groups. In other words, liberalism is becoming less and less liberal. More than that, there's certain practices of worship. There's certain altars. that, If you want to be accepted by the secular society, you need to worship at those altars. You see, it's basically trying to promise a utopian vision, heaven on earth, but without God. It's trying to promise the kingdom without the king. But, but you need to realize that heaven, at least biblically, is defined as the place where God resides. The secular mindset wants heaven without God, but heaven is about God. That rhymes. That's worthy of a Twitter um, tweet. Um, that's what the society wants. Heaven on earth without God, but heaven is about God. You see, secularism, in my mind at least, is a human remedy to the ills of our age. But we need a divine remedy, which leads to point three. What is the divine remedy? And the answer is mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So how do we be part of this story of mercy? Well, let me just summarize with one statement. This is the words of Jesus. It says, freely receive and then freely give. Freely receive mercy. Let the blood of Jesus flow from the cross and let it cleanse you, wash away sin, separate sin from you as far as the east is from the west. Let it reconcile you to the Father freely receive. And once you freely receive, then freely give it away. Dispense mercy, give it out. You know, flush hatred from your hearts and extend mercy. And when you feel empty, you drink again, you receive from your Father in heaven and you give it away and you receive and 
and you give and you begin this cycle freely I receive and freely I give. You see, this is the posture of reconciliation. It's basically hands up to our Father to receive and then it's hands out to the world to give. This is the way of Jesus and this is the way of the cross.